Isaiah chapter number 8 this morning. Thank you to our visitors for being here, man. What a blessing to have you here in the house of the Lord. And uh, I trust that God will speak to your heart this morning. Over the past few weeks, we have been preaching on one topic uh, here on Sundays at Walridge Baptist Church, and that is the topic of the Incarnation. And uh, we began on the first week looking at the Incarnation through different perspectives. You say, what do you mean, preacher? Well, what did it do? Why did God become flesh and walk amongst man? You know, that's what we're celebrating this time of year, this Christmas season, is the Incarnation. And uh, we think of it as the Christmas story, but oh, so much more happened than just what was happening in Bethlehem. If you could see it from heaven's perspective, uh, how glorious that that moment would have appeared as the king of glory stepped out of his uh, ivory palaces and walked into flesh and walked amongst mankind. What a remarkable truth that is. And we've been asking the question, why did God do that? Or what was the purpose? What was accomplished? And so we looked the first week at Genesis 3.15, very first promise of the incarnation. It talks about the seed of the woman. And it viewed the incarnation as a solution to man's fall and man's foe and for man's forgiveness. Then we took a few moments and looked in 1 Timothy chapter 3. I examined what Paul said. He said, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. And Paul has been telling Timothy that he ought to know how to behave himself in the house of God. And he says, this is how you know. You want to know what uh, good behavior looks like? Look at the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the incarnation as a demonstration. Uh, and then last week we looked at John chapter number 1. The Bible tells us that the Word was made flesh. We beheld His glory like as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Uh, John goes on to say down in verse 18 that no man has seen God at any time, but the only begotten of the Father, uh, or the, uh, the only begotten Son which is in the bosom of the Father, hath declared Him. And so John presents it as a revelation of who He is. Last Sunday night we spent a few moments in Galatians chapter 4. Uh, Paul invokes the truth of the incarnation when he is challenging and charging these Galatian believers to not go into uh, Judaistic law, but to rather trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, he tells us that when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law. And so we looked at it as a liberation. But this morning, we're going to find our way to chapter 9. I know I'm beginning in chapter 8. Now, go ahead and warn you, I've got a little bit of Scripture that I need to read this morning to give you an idea of what's taking place. If we don't know the Bible in context, we don't know it at all. So we want to know the context of the Word of God. Uh, But I would remind you before we begin reading what we're preaching about, the incarnation. What is the incarnation? Well... Isaiah 7:14 defines it probably clearest in scripture it says the Lord, therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign behold a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel in the new testament we're told what that word Emmanuel means it means God with us if i was to give you a definition i would uh, give you this one the eternally existent second person of the triune Godhead, indwelt the sinless body prepared for him by the conception of the Holy Spirit in a virgin's womb. He was born in Bethlehem in the land of Israel and lived a perfect sinless life. He is a 100% God as he has always and eternally been. And due to this miraculous entrance into time and humanity, he is also a 100% man. This event and ongoing reality constitutes the truth of the incarnation. 
We've made three statements all along the way. I know I'm, I'm getting my introduction done before I read my text, so don't get nervous, amen. But uh, we've talked about what the incarnation is, and uh, we made three comments. The incarnation is a truth of historical fact. Uh, any intellectually honest person uh, could not deny the reality of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you cannot deny the life of the Lord Jesus, then you cannot deny the birth of the Lord Jesus. No man ever lived uh, that wasn't born first. And seeing the supernatural nature of his life, it is no stretch to understand that what the Bible says about the incarnation is 100% true. That he was not just a good man, he was the God-man. He was not just a son of God, like some Bible corruptions try to say in uh, Daniel chapter number 3, but he was the son of God and uh, God the Son. So it is a truth of historical fact. We then said the incarnation is a truth of theological force. So what do you mean by that, preacher? Well, I mean it affects what you believe. Uh, There's a phrase that I've used often, and I want you to sort of galvanize it in your mind. It's the concept of theological consequence. So what does that mean, preacher? Well, that means this. If I believe something, that's going to affect other things I believe. Uh, you see, uh, no doctrine is an island unto itself. It's, it's not just one thread, but it's part of a tapestry. And so if I believe wrong about some things, it's going to make me believe wrong about other things. Uh, if I believe A, that's going to lead me to believe C. That's going to lead me to believe uh, D. And so uh, whatever it might be, it, there is theological consequence to everything we believe. Well, the incarnation is no exception. If you believe wrong about the incarnation, it's going to mess up everything else that you believe. And so what you believe about it is paramount to your perspective on the Bible. And then we said this, the incarnation is a truth of practical faith. In other words, it's not just some dusty catechism to rest on a bookshelf in some theology textbook, but it is a living, breathing, powerful truth that affects and informs the way we live our life. I couldn't be a Christian if Jesus hadn't come and walked in flesh. I, listen, I, well, what did one commentator say? The Son of God became the Son of Man so that sons of men might become the sons of God. I couldn't be who I need to be in Jesus Christ if it were not for the incarnation. So we're talking about this reality, Christ being robed in flesh. And one of the most prominent places that this is highlighted in Scripture is in the ninth chapter of the book of Isaiah. But to give us a little perspective before we get there, I want to begin by reading the eighth chapter. You've already been warned we're going to read a whole chapter of the Bible, all right? So whatever you need to do to ready yourself for that, you go ahead and do it. But we're going to read the first, uh, the, the entirety of this chapter and then by the Lord's help the first seven verses of chapter nine. Now Isaiah the prophet is prophesying to the southern kingdom of Judah. This is a time when the kingdom of Israel is divided in two. The northern ten tribes uh, make up the kingdom of Israel. Southern two tribes of Benjamin and Judah make up the kingdom of Judah. Isaiah is prophesying to that southern kingdom. And God says an interesting thing to him. Verse number 1, the Bible says, Moreover the Lord said unto me, Take thee a great roll and write in it with a man's pen concerning Mahershalal Hushbaz. I couldn't say it again like that if I tried. Amen. (laughs) Now, that name is a name that will be given to one of Isaiah's children who's not yet born. It says, And I took unto me faithful witnesses to record Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jeberechiah. And I went unto the prophetess, and she conceived. He's talking about his wife. He went unto his wife. She conceived, 
and bear a son. Then said the Lord unto me, Call his name Mahershalal Hashbaz. For before the child shall have knowledge to cry, My father and my mother, the riches of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria shall be taken away before the king of Assyria. Damascus, the capital city of the Syrians. Not Assyrians, but the Syrian people. And Samaria is the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. So, in other words, before this child would be old enough to to speak his mother and father's titles, that uh, these two kingdoms of Syria and Israel would be destroyed by the Assyrians, the king of Assyria. Verse 5, the Lord spake also unto me again, saying, For as much as this people, talking about the northern kingdom of Israel, refuses, uh, refuseth the waters of Shiloh. And in that we see that word Shiloh, or as the Jews often say, Shalom, peace. In other words, the peaceful waters, the peaceful way. Instead, they go softly and rejoice in Rezin and Ramalia's son. Rezin was the king of Syria, and Ramalia was uh, the king over Israel. It says, Now therefore, behold, the Lord bringeth up upon them the waters of the river, strong and many, even the king of Assyria and all his glory. And he shall come up over all his channels and go over all his banks. The invasion of the Assyrian army is likened to floodwaters. It says, and he shall pass through Judah. That's their kingdom. That's the people that Isaiah is prophesying to. He shall overflow and go over. He shall reach even to the neck. And the stretching out of his wings shall fill the breadth of thy land. By the way, this is only the second time in the Old Testament that the word is Emmanuel is used. Oh, Emmanuel. In other words, denoting that it was God's land, not Israel's land. By the way, this does take place later on during the days of Hezekiah, whenever the king of Assyria, Tiglath-Pileser, sends his armies to the gates of Jerusalem. And you remember that the angel of the Lord comes and slays 185,000 Assyrians in the night and turns them packing back for Assyria. But then notice verse number 9. We have a little bit of sarcasm. You know God's a sarcastic God. Associate yourselves, O ye people. And ye shall be broken in pieces. And give ear, all of ye far countries. Gird yourselves, and ye shall be broken in pieces. Gird yourselves, and ye shall be broken in pieces. Take counsel together, and it shall come to naught. Speak the word, and it shall not stand, for God is with us. He's challenging these other Gentile nations. It says in verse 11, For the Lord spake thus to me with a strong hand, and instructed me, this is Isaiah speaking, that I should not walk in the way of this people, saying, Say ye not a confederacy to all them to whom this people shall say a confederacy. Neither fear ye their fear, nor be afraid. See, Israel had a bad habit whenever problems came. They didn't go to the Lord. They went to Gentile neighbors. And they, in fact, would do that very thing. They would go and seek a confederacy with Egypt, seek a confederacy with the Edomites, seek a confederacy with some other nation. And God told Isaiah, don't go the direction they're going and don't even let them go without hearing your voice. You need to tell them that that's the wrong strategy. This is what they ought to do instead. Verse 13, sanctify the Lord of hosts himself and let him be your fear and let him be your dread. I think the only thing we ought to really fear in life is the Lord. Amen. And he shall be for a sanctuary. You're going to hear some messianic prophecy here. 
but for a stone of stumbling and for a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel, for a gin and for a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many among them shall stumble and fall and be broken and be snared and be taken. Now, I know you're being patient and you got to get that leg workout done today. So let me say this to you. Uh, in the Old Testament, the prophecies oftentimes would uh, glimpse back and forth between a local immediate application and a distant application. And then in this case, an even further distant application. He said, preacher, what are you getting at? Well, I'm saying this, that uh, the Lord would become a dividing point in the land of Israel. Some would want to trust Him, some would not. And because of their unwillingness, they would stumble into captivity. But you and I both know this looking not just at this time. We know who that stone of stumbling is. We know who that rock of offense is. But we also know that He is the chief cornerstone and He is our sanctuary. And so they would repeat this sad pattern again when the Lord Jesus would come. Instead of looking to the Lord, they would look to the Roman government. So Isaiah is told this, bind up the testimony. In other words, uh, lay seal to the law among my disciples. Take the Bible, take this truth, take this prophecy. And he says, lay it in store. He says, and I will wait upon the Lord that hideth his face from the house of Jacob. And I will look for him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord hath given me are for signs and for wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts, which dwelleth in Mount Zion. Now, why did he say that? Because his previous son, his older boy, and this son that would be born were both given significant names to bear witness and testimony to what God was going to do. And here's what the Lord tells Isaiah. Isaiah, they're not going to listen to you, but don't go the direction they're going. Take this prophecy, bind it up, seal it up, give it to those who will listen, and be a testimony in this wicked generation. He says in verse 19, And when they shall say unto you, Seek unto them that have a familiar spirit, and unto wizards that peep and that mutter. Should not a people seek unto their God? For the living to the dead? In other words, he's saying, why would you go and seek to the dead? You have a living God. He says, to the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. And Israel, by the way, went for a lot of years in that condition, still is today in that condition. There's no light in them because they won't go to the light of the word of God. He says, and they shall pass through it. Hardly bestead and hungry. And it shall come to pass that when they shall be hungry, they shall fret themselves and curse their king and their God and look upward. And they shall look unto the earth and behold trouble and darkness, dimness of anguish, and they shall be driven to darkness. Verse 9 or chapter 9 verse 1, nevertheless, the dimness shall not be such as was in her vexation. When at the first he lightly afflicted the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward did more grievously afflict her by the way of the sea beyond Jordan in Galilee of the nations. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. Thou hast multiplied the nation and not increased the joy. They joy before thee according to the joy in harvest, or, and as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For thou hast broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder. The rod of his oppressor is in the day of Midian, when Gideon uh, delivered the children of Israel from the Midianites. 
For every battle of the warrior is is with confused noise and garments rolled in blood. But this shall be with burning and fuel of fire. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Thank you so much for your patience. Lord, I love you this morning. Bless your word. Use it in our hearts. Use it in our minds. We ask it in Christ's precious name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Now, I appreciate you letting me read all of that passage of Scripture because I wanted you to understand the context of what is transpiring. Isaiah is living in a day when the Assyrians do not look like they're going to invade the land of Israel. But under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, Isaiah indeed prophesies that that day is in fact coming. But the judgment upon Israel will not end simply with the carrying away of the northern ten tribes. That would not be the end of their suffering and of their anguish. But that even after the southern two tribes were brought back to the land, there would be a period of spiritual lethargy and and of scriptural darkness for many, many long years. And in the backdrop of this dismal state, chapter 9 begins to talk about when a light would shine in the land of Israel. Israel. That light is the light of the world. That light is the Lord Jesus Christ. And it describes how he would come and minister to the land of Israel and the unusual things surrounding his earthly life. But then, as is often the case with Old Testament prophets, Isaiah leaps beyond the present years and looks to a day still future from where we stand whenever this same light, this same Lord, this same Messiah will set up a government over which He will be king and will bring to fruition all the promises that He's made to Israel as a nation and to humanity at large. You see, this is not just the story of a babe born in a manger in Bethlehem. This is the story of a new kingdom and of a glorious king. And if I could preach to you for a few moments this morning, I would preach with this thought, the incarnation viewed as a coronation. You know what a coronation is, right? That's when the king gets crowned. And something that was lost upon this world in its darkness and ignorance on that night in Bethlehem is it was not just a good man that was born. It was not just a righteous man that was born. was not just a rabbi that was born. was not even just their Messiah that was born. But in fact, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the King of all glory, stepped out of heaven and entered His future domain and jurisdiction. I mean, what a glorious thing it was that transpired on that day. And understanding it in the context of Scripture, we are enlightened to some things that that give note to why Israel as a nation rejected Him as the Messiah. Can I just say it this way? They didn't get it. They never got it. And and listen, lest you think I as a wild olive branch and boasting against the natural olive branch, had it not been for the Holy Ghost, I wouldn't have got it. But they as a nation, they never understood it. They always viewed their Messiah as being simply a temporal leader that would come and cast off the Gentile yokes from off their shoulders. 
And when He came, and He didn't come for a crown, He came for a cross. He didn't come to be uh, uplifted in exaltation, but rather to be uplifted in crucifixion. They just could not compute the Messiah with the image that they had of Him. When we come to this passage of Scripture, though, we learn that in fact the Lord Jesus came exactly like the Bible said He would come. I would Time would fail me to deal with every prophecy that's given, but merely in our text this morning, I want you to notice a few things about this incarnate king. In fact, I'll tell you what they are so that you don't get nervous that the Shonies is going to close down their bar, all right? In verse 1 through verse 5, we see the course of the incarnate king. Where did he come from? When did he come? Where is he going? And then in verse 6, we see the character of the incarnate king. Who is he? What's his name? What do we know about him? And thankfully in verse 7, it begins to talk about the kingdom of the incarnate king. Man, I'm glad there's a king coming back. Uh, can I tell you something? I, I don't know. You may have. I ain't bought none of the Trump trading cards. I don't, I, I ain't, and I know that's hard to believe. As fiscally minded as a person as I am, I, I, I haven't bought any of the Trump trading cards or anything. And, and I'm just going to say something. You get mad at me, that'd be all right. It, it probably won't be the first or the last time. Listen, I ain't looking for Donald Trump to fix this thing. <laughs> he didn't fix it the first time. That's all right. I'll say it again. He didn't fix it the first time. I don't think that swamp ever got drained, do you? I sure enough ain't looking for the Democrats to fix nothing. They ain't even trying to. Their job's to break as much as they can. You say, preacher, what you looking for? I ain't looking for a president. I ain't looking for a congressman. I ain't looking for a senator. I'm looking for a king. And when the king comes, he ain't coming to take any votes. He ain't coming to have any polls done. He's coming to assume a throne. I'm looking for the king to come. And I'm reminded when I come to this Christmas season that the king that came once is coming again. And I'm to live in light of that reality. Notice three things about the course of this incarnate king. What was going on when he walked in to this world? Well, look with me at verse number one. The Bible says this. Nevertheless, the dimness, talking about spiritual darkness. You remember in uh, chapter number eight, it described how there was no light in them because they would not obey the scripture. They would not uh, go to the scripture uh, to shape and mold their lives. It says, nevertheless, the dimness shall not be such as was in her vexation. In other words, it's describing the earthly ministry of Christ, the state of Israel at that time. And it's saying this, that Israel during the earthly ministry of Christ would be at a season of darkness. They would have rejected the truth. They would have refused the truth. But that darkness would not be as dark as it was during their captivity. You say, preacher, why is that? Because in the midst of that, there would be a light shining truth unto them. It says in verse number 1, Nevertheless, the dimness shall not be such as was in her vexation, when at the first he lightly afflicted the land of Zebulun. It's a border town there in Israel. And the land of Naphtali, another border town on the northern side of Israel, where the Assyrians came from. And afterward did more grievously afflict her by way of the sea beyond Jordan in Galilee of the nations. Again, in the northern part of the kingdom. Then it says this, verse 2, The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. 
Now, if you're a student of the Bible, this immediately started firing off synapses in your mind. You started immediately remembering that somewhere in the New Testament, these very verses are quoted. And in fact, in Matthew chapter number 4, the Gospel writer says this, verse number 12. Now, when Jesus had heard that John was cast into prison, he departed into Galilee. Didn't we read that back in Isaiah chapter 9? Galilee of the Gentiles, Galilee of the nations. He departed into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, his home, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, further north, which is upon the seacoast, in the borders of Zebulon and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah, that's a way of saying Isaiah, the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people which sat in darkness saw great light, and to them which sat in the region and shadow of death, light is sprung up. From that time Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So these verses are directly, by inspiration of the Holy Ghost, connected with the earthly ministry of the Lord Jesus. You say, preacher, I appreciate that. It's an interesting factoid. I'll be ready if it comes up on Jeopardy. But what does it have to do with my life? Well, remember what the prophet Isaiah is saying. He's saying that the Messiah would come not at a time of glorious scriptural exaltation and illumination, but rather he would come in a time of deep scriptural darkness, a time when the word of God had been rejected, twisted, and abused. You know, there were a lot of scribes and Pharisees and lawyers living in the land of Israel at that time, uh, but to them they were just trafficking in whatever convenient untruth would advance them in society. You say, preacher, how do you know that because when the truth walked amongst them they nailed him to a tree they condemned him as a malefactor as a criminal they called him illegitimate they called him a gluttonous man and a wine bibber they, they besmirched and maligned the truth when they were faced with it but i've got good news for you hey listen i'm glad the light of the world isn't afraid of the darkness of the human condition rather than the king waiting till the kingdom was ready he said i'll go and get the kingdom ready And he comes during a time of great spiritual darkness. Now you say, well, preacher, that's interesting. But what does that have to do with Zebulon and Naphtali? Well, I told you, that's on the northern end of the kingdom of Israel. And in fact, something you'll notice as you read through the Bible is the southern cities and regions of Israel and the northern regions, they didn't gee and haw too well. Some of y'all Yankees don't know what I just said. (laughs) I ain't speaking in any tongue except hillbilly, all right? Uh, they didn't get along too well. They didn't think well one of another. In fact, we see this in John chapter 4 whenever Christ goes to Jacob's well. And there's a woman there who the Bible calls a Samaritan. Now, isn't that interesting? Because remember, Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. But now, wait a minute. Samaria doesn't exist or should not exist. Because when Tiglath-Pileser, the king of Assyria, came, he destroyed and annihilated the northern ten tribes. He put his own people there, Assyrians, to intermarry with the Jews that were present there. And he annihilated their tribal identity. But that really is the very reason that there was such animosity from the southern Jews to the northern Jews. Because they viewed Samaritans as of impure blood, as half-breeds, so to speak, half-Jew, half-Gentile. And they viewed them as somehow lesser in their relation to God. That's the reason whenever he speaks to that Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, she says, how is it that ye, being a Jew, ask us drink of me, which are the Samaritans? says, you got no business talking to me. I'm from the wrong side of the tracks. 
But I gotta tell you something. Oh, my soul. Can I tell you, uh, you know the Lord Jesus, He was born in southern Bethlehem, but He was raised up in northern Nazareth. And do you know that the initial introduction of His earthly ministry did not take place as He walked the dusty, aged, and hallowed streets of Jerusalem, but rather in the hillsides and valleys of the rugged northern country in the land of Israel. You see, we would expect the King to come from the south where Jerusalem and the temple are. But you know, He never comes from where we think He's going to come from. He came and ministered in those broken, devastated, polluted, dirty, filthy, rejected northern towns that no one wanted anything to do with. You know what it tells me, man? It tells me this. He ain't afraid of our mess. The king ain't afraid of our mess. Our politicians are afraid of our mess because they got enough of their own mess to have to deal with. They ain't interested in helping you with your mess. They'll tax you in your mess, but they ain't interested in helping you in your mess. But hey, listen, a king like the Lord Jesus Christ, he ain't afraid of man's dark condition because he's the light of the world. He can rectify that darkness. He can shine a light in the soul of mankind. And when we read about him, he did not come. And this is part of what threw the scribes and, and the Pharisees. They had an image of how he should have been. And man, don't it just mess you up when God don't look like you think he does? Some of y'all going to get to heaven and be tore up when you find out he ain't got long blonde hair and blue eyes. You're going to say, Reader's Digest lied to me. But I don't just mean aesthetically. I mean, God very often does things different than what we would expect Him to do. And the very nature of the king is this. Isaiah says His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. When we see the king coming and entering into his kingdom... He don't come walking up David's king's road there from the Olivet Mountain into the temple. Rather, he comes walking the rugged and dusty roads from Galilee of the Gentiles, from a place he should not have been coming from, uh, in a state that he... Hey, why did the Jews reject him? Because they saw him and thought he should have been wearing a crown, but instead he came with not a place to lay his head. They didn't expect him. Can I tell you this? Your Christianity will go a lot better if you'll let God define who he is instead of your plans, ambitions, and expectations. I see he came during a season of darkness. But then look at verse 3 in our text. It says this, Thou hast multiplied the nation, and not increased the joy. They joy before thee according to the joy in harvest, and as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. People ask me all the time about commentaries. Preach, what do you think about commentaries? And I think they're as good as their commentary. But something you'll find when you read them is often there's this echo chamber that develops. You know, funny thing about it, most people ain't got time to write like a 47 encyclopedic volume commentary. And so these guys all read after each other. I found something interesting when I was reading the commentators. Without fail, every single one of them rejected the King James Bible in this passage. I don't just mean they tried to say, well, maybe it could have been this or maybe. They actually said that the King James translators got it entirely wrong. That it should not say, thou hast multiplied the nation and not increased joy, but that it should say, thou hast multiplied the nation and increased joy. By the way, when people want to tell you, well, these new versions, they don't really change nothing. Yeah, they do. Yeah, they do. Yeah, they do. Yeah, they do. Oftentimes, they will completely turn on its head what the King James Bible said. And I thought that was interesting for two reasons. One, 
the arrogance for any commentator, myself included, to completely out of hand dismiss. I don't care how many, I don't care how many intro to Hebrew or Greek classes you've had to dismiss the paramount monumental work of the 54 men that translated the King James Bible. Men whose academic prowess would humiliate the very luminaries of our day. Men like Lancelot Andrews, who when he died was conversant in 15 languages, meaning he could talk better uh, in 15 languages than I can in English. Amen. Uh, men that, that had read the entire Hebrew Bible through by the age of six. Uh, men like that. I think it's arrogant to just dismiss out of hand. And these guys that want to say, well, you just old country folks in your King James Bible. You know, you just don't know no better. Now listen, if you'll put away all that nonsense and noise and just sit down with your King James Bible and read it, you'll find it makes sense. And here's what the commentators miss by abusing Scripture. They're trying to ascribe this verse to the Millennial Kingdom. But there's a problem here, and I believe in a Millennial Kingdom. But they miss that this is a perfect apt description of the state of Israel when the Lord came during His first advent, during His earthly ministry. You say, what do you mean, preacher? Well, stop and think about it this way. He came in a season of darkness, but He also came during a time of spiritual deadness. You remember what the problem was. Israel had no problem with the notion of a political leader that would deliver them from the Romans. They loved that idea. When they looked at the prospect of of getting the governance of their own land back, they loved that. Uh, You know, the earthly ministry of the Lord Jesus, it's divided into three years. And I don't just mean because He walked amongst us three and a half years, but I mean there's three distinct years in it. There's a year of introduction. And that's whenever his name was being spread abroad. People didn't know who he was, but he began to perform miracles and word was published abroad of who he was. Afterwards, in the second year, was a year of acclamation. And you find great masses. The Bible uses the term multitude. The multitudes would go out and follow him out into the wilderness to hear his teaching. And then you'll find the last year was a year of rejection. In other words, he started saying some things. Hey, listen, sometimes truth drives people away. And when he started saying things like, except ye eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you shall have no part in me. The Bible says many walked away from went away from him and walked with him no more. But why was there that year of acclamation? Why was there that year when the name of Jesus was the hottest name in the land of Israel? Because everybody listening to him, when he would talk about a kingdom, they he said one thing and they heard another thing. He don't you? I do too. All the time, God will say one thing and I'll hear another thing. But whenever he talked about a kingdom and he talked about authority and he talked about new laws and he talked about new precepts, they thought what he was saying is, you're going to come and lead us in a Maccabean revolution that overthrows the Gentile arm of the Roman government. You're going to give us our sovereignty. You're going to give us all these things. And listen, when they thought that believing on him would mean temporal advancement and blessings, they were excited about that. When they found out that it would mean crucifying self and believing on Him and throwing away their self-righteousness, all of a sudden they weren't interested anymore. Isaiah, under inspiration of the Holy Ghost, he perfectly characterizes the spiritual deadness of the day that the Lord walked amongst us. He says this, Thou hast multiplied the nation, and He had. Israel was not at their most prosperous. But when you think about that small assembly of people that came out of Babylonian captivity to repatriate the land, they had increased. They, they had become wealthy. They had become uh, prosperous and, and lucrative in, in their ways. They had grown as a population. Thou hast multiplied the nation. Here's the problem. And not increase the joy. 
You know something you'll find about hypocrites? They're joyless people. And when you come to the, to the behavior and attitudes of the Pharisees, you find that they have no joy. And by the way, this is still true today, right? Our overlords have no sense of humor. That's why you see everything happening with all the Internet and censoring people in it for obvious jokes is because they just have no sense of humor. People that are self-important have no sense of humor. They can't laugh because they're afraid you might be laughing at them and their worldview cannot take it. And the Pharisees, they were a joyless people, a miserable people. And in fact, rather than trying to lift the burdens upon the people in the land of Israel, the Lord said that they had added to their burdens. They had made life more miserable, more arduous. Here comes the Lord Jesus, and He's preaching a life and a liberty that they have never heard before. A relationship with God that is totally transcendent to their concept of how they could know God. And it was a radical moment in their history as a nation. But you know why? They had no joy. Yeah. Say, but preacher, they, they, they rejoiced when, during that year of acclamation. Well, here's how they joyed. They joy before thee according to the joy in harvest. In other words, when a man has a great crop yield, he's excited because he's got something. Or, as men rejoice, when they divide the spoil. They looked at him and said, here's our great deliverer that's going to deliver us and free our nation. We're on board for that. But then all of a sudden, when they were faced with their own spiritual need, they balked at it. Man, what a reminder it is to you and to I to make sure that, that the terms, ooh, how do I say this? That the terms of our devotion to God are clear and right. I'm not talking about our salvation necessarily. You ought to love Him for the right things. You ought to worship Him for the right things. You might get away a little while worshiping Him for the wrong things. But sooner or later, you're going to have a Job moment. And you're going to have to make up your mind why you worship Him. Everything ripped away from you, you're going to have to make up your mind. So he came during a time of of spiritual deadness. But then notice verses 4 and 5. And here Isaiah leaps from the current perspective all the way to a coming day in which the Lord will bring into reality all of those things. Now you say, preacher, why does Isaiah say it this way? Well, they rejoiced as though he had come to deliver them. The only problem is, and he undoubtedly, I don't want to get in the weeds, but if they had received him as Messiah, everything was already set up according to history where he could have come and and overthrown the Romans. But we understand that the church is not an audible that he called. It was always part of God's plan. And when they found out the terms of it, they, they rejected it. But here's why, because this is what they thought was going to happen. It says, for thou hast broken the yoke of his burden. And the staff of his shoulder, meaning a rod of correction, the rod of his oppressor that's mentioned, that would be used to strike a man across the back or the shoulder. As in the day of Midian, the day when the Lord confused the Midianites, when Gideon had led his army of 300 there upon the hillside, and God supernaturally confounded the Midianites and destroyed them. He says this, For every battle of the warrior is with confused noise, both describing what happened to the Midianites and a coming war as well. And garments rolled in blood. Then he says this, though. But this shall be with burning and fuel of fire. I don't know about you. Sometimes I think about things. And it messes me up. Life would be a lot easier if we'd be like a lot of people and just not think so much, right? And I started to think about Israel and their history and started to try to think about what this could characterize. And then all of a sudden it struck me that what Isaiah is describing here is a battle scene. 
They thought this battle scene was going to transpire sometime, the Pharisees did, and, and those in the earthly ministry of Christ during their lifetime. And that God was going to, as He had done the Midianites, He was going to miraculously overthrow the Romans. If you know your history, you know that's not what happened. You know, in fact, in 70 A.D. that Titus, the future, he wasn't the emperor then, but the future emperor of Rome, sacked the city of Jerusalem, burnt the temple to the ground. And you'll know that the Roman Empire did not end in a great climactic battle in which they were annihilated, but rather through corruption and bureaucracy, they merely deteriorated over the course of hundreds of years. So it can be talking about the Romans. And rather, here's what he's doing. Isaiah's catching a glimpse. You ever just catch a glimpse of something? Just a glimpse. He's catching a glimpse. The Israelites thought he was catching a glimpse of the Romans being destroyed. But in fact, he was catching a glimpse of a future empire, still future, that will one day be destroyed. That empire is going to be overthrown in one dramatic day. That empire is going to be overthrown with confusion on every hand. That empire is going to be destroyed with garments rolled in blood. But it won't be like the Midianites where they fall upon one another with a sword. How's it going to happen? Well, your Bible says this. It's going to happen with burning and fuel of fire. Does your Bible back that up? Sure it does. Second Thessalonians says this in chapter 1, verse 7. He says, And to you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power, when He shall come to be glorified in His saints and to be admired in all them that believe, because our testimony among you was believed in that day. Preacher, what are you getting at? Isaiah, he sees a great battle that takes place. He don't know when it is, but God knew when it would be. And one of these days, the Lord Jesus, at the end of a seven-year tribulation period, is going to appear in power, majesty, glory, and authority. And with burning and fuel of fire, will overthrow the armies of the Antichrist, break the yoke of burden that's upon Israel's shoulders, and deliver them as a people. Let's say it this way. He came for a spectacular deliverance. So here in this passage, we see the course of the incarnate king. Now, I've about done all the preaching you can handle, but you hang with me for just a moment. And notice chapter or verse number 6. We see in it the character of the incarnate king. All this brings us to a certain question, right? If you're reading the Bible with common sense and, 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 and plain understanding, that brings you to a question. God's going to do this. He's going to overthrow these Gentile nations. He's going to exert His own authority. How's He going to do that? What's it going to be? Is it going to be a theocracy? Is it going to be a democracy? Is it going to be a democratic republic? I don't think those will still exist. They don't exist today. So, you know, what's it going to be? Well, the Bible tells us what it's going to be. It's going to be a monarchy. It's going to be a theocratic monarchy. Say, what does that mean? It means God sitting on the throne. That's what it's going to be. How do we know that? Well, verse 6 tells us, For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. Here's why he's saying, man, be patient with it. Here's why he's saying, he's saying, those leaders you got, Israel, they done messed you up. They've led you astray. They've not followed the Bible. They've not followed the Lord. They've led you astray. One of these days, he's going to come back and rule himself. And then the government, it'll be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. So what's the character of this incarnate king? Well, notice first off his identity. 
says this, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. We could really, if time would permit it, stop here and preach till Christmas on that one phrase. For in it is contained the proprietary identity, the unique character of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have both His divinity and His humanity being invoked in one simple phrase. Preacher, why is that? Well, a child was born in Bethlehem. That holy thing that was in Mary was birthed. That physical body was birthed. But it was not just a child like your child or my child. In fact, not only was a child born, I like this, a son was given. Here we have the divinity of the Lord Jesus spoken of. For He didn't begin to exist on that night in Bethlehem. Nor, by the way, did He begin to exist at the moment of conception. That body may have began to exist at that moment. By the way, this is unique to him. It's not the way that a, that a regular person, a, a child is a life at the moment of conception. That's the point in the Word of God that's described. Talks about the birth and talks about in the womb and talks about at conception. I believe a child is a life at the moment of conception. But the Lord Jesus was a unique situation. That body was living, but He had not yet inhabited it. I don't know at what point. Certainly by the time that John the Baptist as a babe leaps in the womb at the announcement, certainly uh, he was leaping at the presence of the God of the universe. But really, there's questions I can't answer. I can, however, note this. He did not begin to exist at the moment of conception. That body may have began to exist, but the eternal Son had always existed. And so you say, preacher, was a child born? Yes. A child that walked and lived, that got hungry, that got weary, that got tired, uh, that bled, uh, that, that was beset about all of the, the infirmities and struggles and, and difficulties that you and I are. In a hundred percent humanity, He walked amongst us and suffered like us. It behooved Him to be made like unto His brethren. But it wasn't just a child that was born. Also the eternal second person of the Godhead. God, not just the Son of God, but God the Son was given unto mankind. We see his identity. Notice number two, not only his identity, notice his destiny. The Bible says this, the government shall be upon his shoulder. We say often, we sang it this week, and actually tonight, if the Lord will, uh, you know, and, and y'all don't kill me, uh, then, I, you know, I, I'm going to preach about him coming and being born to die. But, you know, it really would be a better thing to maybe say it this way. He was born to die, and he died that he might raise and He raised that He might rule. It was never a question about whether He was going to be king. Never a question about whether He was going to set a throne. It has always been, and even in Isaiah's day, the Holy Ghost was saying, the government shall be upon His shoulder. Man, I can't wait for the day for the government to be on His back and get off mine. Somebody say amen. Can't wait for the day for it to rest on Him, to rule and to reign in righteousness. His destiny always from the beginning, it was always headed towards the cross, but it was never going to end there. It was never in doubt or dispute or debate whether He would rise from the dead. He was the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And he's been the King since that time too. I see His destiny. Then notice His majesty. What's his name going to be? <laughs> Tell me his name again. What's his name going to be? His name shall be called Wonderful. Amen. Counselor. The Mighty God. The Everlasting Father. The Prince of Peace. Let's just, let's just look at those real quick. I remember hearing Dr. Seitler, Dr. Harold Seitler, 
talk years ago preaching out of this very passage and he said you can imagine the scene when uh, all of the sudden news has spread around the whole world that the armies of the Antichrist have been defeated and destroyed and that the King of Glory has assumed the throne of his father David there in the city of Jerusalem. You can imagine as the television cameras gather around and crowd around him wanting to gain some glimpse, wanting to gain some uh, some sight of, of who he is. And you can imagine as families gathered in their homes uh, begin to gaze upon him for the very first time. And, and he said, I can just see somebody who's maybe describing what that scene is. And somebody says, were you there that day? Did you see him that day? What did he look like that day? And he said, I can just hear a person's voice as they turn and say, he was wonderful. He was wonderful. I've never seen anyone like him. I've never heard anyone that speaks like him. I've never had anyone look at me the way he looked at me. It was like he knew me in my very soul. And he looked at me with love in his eyes and compassion in his heart. And I'm nobody to him. But he looked at me that, you say, preacher, what is he? He's wonderful. He's wonderful. Uh, Preacher, there's things he does I don't understand. I know, me too. He's still wonderful. Preacher, life ain't turned out the way that I thought it would. Well, maybe not. But he's still wonderful. Say, preacher, I'm so miserable. I'm so sick of this world. Everything's so messed up and so broken. Well, get your eyes off him and look at him because he's wonderful. Preacher, I'm just so discouraged by the state of things. Then quit looking at the state of things and start looking at the Son of God. You'll have no complaints. He's wonderful. He's not just wonderful. He's the counselor. One of the most shocking things in becoming an adult is when you realize that people don't get smarter when they become adults. I don't know about you. Do you remember that moment when you one day thought, okay, I'm grown, and then you looked at somebody you went to school with that is an unmitigated moron and thought, they're grown too. And it gets even worse because now I'm to the age people start becoming politicians. And I'm sitting there thinking, that guy's an idiot. He's my age. He has no business doing that. And it's just a disconcerting, distressing thing to realize how utterly bereft and bankrupt the world is of wisdom. Stupidity has become an Olympic sport, and we're always on the top pedestal here. And it's just, it's distressing and disturbing. And boy, don't you wish our politicians believed in God and knew God and talked to God about things? Don't you wish they would look at it and say, now, Fellas, should we go to war? I don't know. Let's pray about it. Let's get together and let's pray about it. And let's get the mind of God. Should we, should, should we pass this new tax? There's some things you ain't even got to pray about. <laughs> Wouldn't it be nice if they did? Hey, there's coming a day that the one that sits on the throne is going to be so wise that we'll just call him counselor. We'll want to hear what he's got to say because everything he speaks will be utter wisdom. He's counselor. Not only that, he's the mighty God. He's not just some lesser or lower individual. He's God in the flesh. He's the everlasting Father. Now, listen, Isaiah's not trying to conflate the identity of the Son with the Father. But when he says the everlasting Father, he's talking about being the Father of everlasting things. In other words, he's the Father of eternity. He's the father of that age. In other words, at that time, he has always been the one appointed to rule and govern eternally. And as such, he is a fit paternal father in his leadership and in his watch care. And then he's this. I like this, man. He's the Prince of Peace. 
Prince of Peace. world talks a lot about peace and don't know a thing about it. They think if you can get folks to quit shooting each other long enough, that's peace. But God's peace goes deeper than that. He's the Prince of Peace. So we, we see this passage, His character. But then notice, and I'm done, notice the kingdom of the incarnate King. Verse 7 says this, Of the increase of His government and peace, there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon His kingdom, to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. What could we say about that coming kingdom? Well, notice, number one, the season of His kingdom. It says this, there shall be no end. There shall be no end. I was at a gas station yesterday and I was buying something to drink and and uh, I made some passing comment uh, to them, or they did to me, about how expensive everything had gotten. We said something about inflation or something. He said, man, everything's got so expensive. I looked at him. I said, well, the good news is, friend, inflation may not be transitory, but politicians are. Sooner or later, hey, death's going to come calling for all of them. I don't know if we'll get better ones than we got when that time comes, but I know there's coming a day that we will get one. And of His government and of His peace, there shall be no end. I rejoice. One of the things that makes heaven heaven is no more political commercials. Because there ain't no more elections. There's just a King, eternal, all glorious. I see the season of His kingdom. I see the seat of His kingdom. Where it's going to be? It says this, upon the throne of David and upon His kingdom. Oh yes, friend, He's going to rule in Jerusalem. He's going to rule in that place that had always been promised. God made this promise to David that there would be no end to His kingdom. One day Jesus is going to keep that promise and He's going to seat upon the throne of Jerusalem. Notice the scepter of His kingdom. What's He going to do? What's He going to do with His authority? Well, He's going to order it. He's going to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. Hey, listen, the devil loves chaos. Loves chaos. Have you noticed how much has got broken in society since everything descended into chaos? They told us if we give them that old normal for a little while, that they'd promise they'd give it back and we could turn in the new normal they gave us. I don't think that's going to happen. I think whatever the normal is, and the good thing about it is there's nothing really normal in this world, but whatever this normal is, the new normal is now the old normal, and you might as well get used to that. Some things are not ever going to change. And you know, a man once said, never let a crisis go to waste. The devil loves chaos, and inasmuch as there is disorder, the devil thrives upon that disorder. So you know what the first thing Jesus is going to do? He's going to get things in order. He's going to order it. The people that shouldn't be in power, He's going to throw out of power. The people that ought to be in power, He's going to put in power. (laughs) The things that are messed up, He's going to fix. Hey, the things that ought to be torn down, He's going to tear down. And the things that ought to be built up, He's going to build up. He's going to order it. And once He gets everything in order, here's what He's going to do. He's going to establish it. He's going to seal it. He's going to make sure that not hell or the devil himself can disrupt what He has set in order. And what's it going to be? With judgment and with justice. A lot of people talk about justice. A lot of people use that word justice. What does justice mean? Well, to the world it means getting back at whoever you can and getting as much out of it as you can in the process. But God, when He speaks of justice, He means justness. With justice from henceforth even forever. And then notice finally, and then I'll be through the introduction and we can get into the message. 
Notice the strength of his kingdom. How's he going to do all this? Well, here's how. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. We could probably use this terminology, the seal of his kingdom. But I, I like that idea that, 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 that how's he going to do it? What's the strength of his kingdom? Is it military martial power? No. Now listen, he commands the armies of heaven. But that ain't going to be how he accomplishes it. You say, preacher, how's he going to, how's he going to do it? Is he going to do it through, through winning hearts and minds and politics? No. Here's how he's going to do it. He's going to do it through the discipline of his will and strength and person. So what do you mean, preacher? Well, you see, he is the word. And when the word was spoken, it became reality. When the word is manifest again and walks amongst humanity, he's going to establish all of these things. The preacher, I sure hope people will accept it. He ain't asking permission this time. He ain't asking permission this time. Uh, this time he's coming back. And with his vesture dipped in blood and a name written on his thigh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And he ain't asking nobody's opinion. He's coming back to rule and to reign. Preacher, what was that? What was that incarnation all about? It was about a lot of things. But don't miss this truth. It was when the king stepped into his kingdom, stepped into his domain. You say, but preacher, he left. Yeah, and he's coming back one day. Are you ready for that day? If the king stepped through right now, would you be ready to bow before him, to meet him? Is there anything in your life you'd have to apologize for? Anything in your life that you'd hope was hidden? Anything in your life where you've not been obedient? If that's true, hey, he could come back at any moment. I know all these events wouldn't happen the moment that he came back for his, for his bride. But as far as you and I are concerned, what we can do and how we can respond and the choices we make are just as imminent as everything. They're right in front of us, right before us. We ought to make sure we're ready when the king comes back. Let's bow together this morning as a musician comes to play. The altar's open. If God spoke to your heart about some area, some matter in your life, would you meet him in the altar? Would you find a place down here and let him have his will and way in your life? He's the king. He ought to get his way. He's the king of your life. You say, preacher, he's my king. If he is, does he have his way in your life? Or is there some area where you've balked at him, some area where you've fenced him out, some area that you've said it's a bridge too far, Lord, I cannot do that. I think if we really knew him as king, there'd be no area of our life that we would shut him out of. Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in his name.